Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Dr. Josh Othman. He's Grail's Chief Medical Officer. Grail is G-R-A-I-L. And we're going to talk about uh, detecting cancer early. And they have uh, an assay or an array that looks like it may be able to detect dozens of different types of cancers, uh, which could be very useful because, you know, it seems like the earlier that cancer is detected, uh, the more you can do to help yourself. So, Josh, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. If you would tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to be uh, a part of Grail or start Grail, and, and we'll go from there. Sure. So, you know, born and raised in Los Angeles, uh, did my college education at Berkeley, where I studied the history and philosophy of science. Uh, went to medical school because my mentors talked me out of being a philosophy professor. And so I always thought uh, it'd be uh, interesting to try a scientific profession. Went to medical school and just loved it. I know it's rare to hear, but I, I just fell in love with medical school and fell in love with medicine there at UC Irvine. And then did all my post-medical uh, training at UCLA, where I became a gastroenterologist and did a primary care health services research fellowship at UCLA and the RAND Corporation, where I really learned how to study the healthcare system and how to study the role of technology in the healthcare system. You know, how do you value it? How do you assess its benefits, its harms, its effectiveness, its efficacy, and uh, went into academia after that, spent seven years at uh, Cedars-Sinai. And we started a, a company there that was did two things. It looked at electronic medical records, you know, back in 1997 and 2000 when it was in its infancy, and how to bring evidence to physicians at the point of care. And we started doing a lot of consulting for life sciences companies which is where I really got my interest in technology and life sciences. We ended up selling that startup uh, to the Cerner Corporation. And then after seven years in academia, I went to Amgen, which is a biotech company. And at the time, I kind of thought, well, you know, how interesting, you know, biotech really seems like it's the future. I really love technology and its role in medicine and society. And so I went and did that, spent 16 years at Amgen, had a terrific career, uh, finished up as the global or worldwide head of market access, pricing, health economics, and government affairs and public policy, and um, was able to move on when I turned 55 and, and retire from Amgen and um, got approached by Grail, this very interesting startup company trying to solve this huge problem of how to detect cancer early. And I started thinking about, wow, you know, this combination of human genomics and machine learning, that's really the future now. And so I joined Grail and it's been about a year and a half and it's just been a, a terrific experience thus far. Yeah. What's the main premise of Grail now in regards to cancer? Yeah. So the, the big idea is, you know, we've been fighting a war against cancer for decades and it's, it's not a war that we're winning. And that's in large part because, you know, today the majority of cancers are simply detected too late, which means it's in their later stage when they've already spread. And, and that's when it's most deadly. 
So, you know, late cancers um, or late cancer detection is really deadly. And in fact, you know, most deadly cancers right now have no available way of detecting them early or no screening tests. We screen for five cancers in this country. We screen for breast cancer, we screen for colon cancer, cervical cancer, prostate cancer, and in smokers, high-risk smokers, we screen for lung cancer. But most of the cancer deaths that occur, so 70 to 80% of them, are occurring in cancers that have no available screening. So these deadly cancers like pancreas and ovary and stomach and head and neck and liver, we don't screen for them at all. And so that's really why GRAIL was pioneered and developed um, out of Illumina in 2016 to solve this problem. How can we look in the blood at little bits of DNA that are circulating in the blood and see signatures of cancer and hopefully find many, many more cancers early? And when cancers are found early, they have a much better chance of effective therapy and even cure. So that's really the idea. When you, um, yeah, when you talk about signatures in the blood, is, is that biomarkers? Is that extracellular vesicles? Is that DNA shed by tumors? Like what is it? Yeah. So as, as cancer grows in the body, you know, it, they, these cells are growing and they're turning over and they're dying. And when these cancer cells die because they're growing and they're invading, they're shedding little bits of DNA into the blood. So the big idea that Grail had when it was spun off was, why don't we do the foundational study and figure out what is the best way to look at the DNA to find cancer? And they did a head-to-head comparison of, well, should we look at gene mutations? Should we look at chromosomal changes? Or should we look at these epigenetic changes or what we call methylation changes to the DNA? which are not changes to the DNA code, but are really molecules that attach to the DNA and turn genes on and off. And those are a well-known signature of cancer. So they, Grail did this head-to-head study. It was called the Circulating Cell-Free Genome Atlas Study. It was 15,000 individuals, 10,000 people with cancer and 5,000 people without cancer. And they taught a machine learning algorithm how to distinguish cancer signals from non-cancer signals based on these methylation patterns. So it's kind of a pattern recognition. And we've now been able to discriminate with very high accuracy um, cancer signals that are circulating in people's blood. So we have technology today that can find cancer in people that don't know they have cancer. What does that look like? What will? Uh, what are some of the substances that people will have in their bloodstream? And you know, what levels that will tell you uh, not only they have cancer, but what kind? Yeah. So we're able to find, you know, very, so because of the, the only reason we're having this conversation today really is because of the huge advances that have been made in both human genomics, our ability to sequence the DNA and find very tiny bits of DNA in the blood and sequence it. And then the, the real advances in machine learning and artificial intelligence. So Grail was founded and it brought these two disciplines together. You know, a bunch of people from Illumina, uh, which is the biggest gene sequencing company, a lot of Google machine learning experts, and then biologists and engineers and clinicians and oncologists. So it brought these minds together to develop this test. And what we do is we can find little bits of DNA into the blood and we sequence that DNA and we look for these methylation patterns. Um, We find which of the DNA bases are methylated have these methyl groups or unmethylated. And based on the patterns that we see, the machine learning can now tell, oh, that's a pattern that's consistent with cancer. 
And the other pattern we see, we see two signatures. We see a signature for cancer or non-cancer. And then we see a signature for where in the body that cancer signal comes from. And that's because these same methyl groups that turn genes on and off that cause cancer, they also turn genes on and off that tell cells where to go in the body. So if you're an embryo and you've got a bunch of immature cells, it's these methylation groups, um, these methyl groups that attach to the DNA, turn genes on and off and tell cells, I'm gonna go become a liver cell, I'm gonna go become a kidney cell. So there's also a signature about where in the body this signal comes from. So when you get a grail test or what we call gallery, which is the name of the test, it can detect over 50 different types of cancer. And the result, it's a simple blood test and you'll get a result back that says no cancer signal detected. Please continue with your current screening. Or you will get a result back that says cancer signal detected. The predicted origin of that cancer signal is liver or ovary or stomach or head and neck. And so it'll tell you where to go. It tells the doctor where to go look for that cancer signal. So what do you see when you look at the epigenetic changes of cells that have cancer? Does this, do you think this happens at the very beginning and it's, it's part of the inception of cancer? Or does it happen later as, you know, I guess, colonial lineages are, are established? Like where in the formation of cancer do you think that these epigenetic changes occur? Well, it's, it's variable, but we know that it's really a hallmark of cancer, that these regions of the genome, so what we look at are, are you know, regions of the genome, and we've learned through these studies, through the Circulating Cell-Free Genome Atlas, what are the most informative regions of the genome to look? So we find those regions of the genome, and in any region like that, you might have one or two or three mutations, right, changes in the DNA sequence but you'll see tens of thousands of methylation changes. So in the genome, there's about 30 uh, million methylation sites. And we, in our assay, we look at about a million of them across 100,000 different regions of the genome. And so what we see across these DNA fragments are these patterns of hypermethylation, where, this, where these base pairs are hypermethylated or hypomethylated. They're very unmethylated compared to normal controls. So when you see these patterns of hypermethylation or hypomethylation, they're very uh, predictive that someone may have cancer. And so it's these very specific patterns that the machine learning algorithm has been trained to see. And then once they see a pattern that looks like cancer, they can then look for that signature of where in the body that, that signal is coming from. And that's similarly uh, a pattern of hyper or hypomethylation. Yeah, I thought methylation is more of a silencing. When when a, a, an area of a gene is methylated, it's downregulated, it's silenced. It can turn it off. That's correct. So, but it does both. So there are t there are genes. Sometimes uh, methylated uh, genes are turned on, and sometimes they're turned off. And so if you if you have a, a gene uh, promoter, right, um, and that promoter is turned on, it can induce cancer. If you have a tumor suppressor gene that normally produces proteins that suppress tumors and that gene is turned off, it can also cause cancer. So you've got both. You've got methylation that can turn genes on or off and similarly with hypomethylation. So how do you know, um, like how different will the methylation pattern be? And, you know, I would, I would guess there's specifics to it, like in pancreatic cancer, for instance, um, yep. there's a methylation pattern, very familiar, it's predictable. Or is cancer like so heterogeneous that it's not predictable, but maybe you look at, there's just a huge change in methylation. Like what, how do you know what to look for in terms of a signal? 
Well, so we've taught, it's really, we, we collected all these cases of all kinds of different cancers and all kinds of different stages. And we just began uh, showing those patterns to a machine learning classifier, which began to learn how to classify these signals. And there are very specific changes that are associated with cancer. And many of those changes are common across many different kinds of cancer, but they're not exactly common. So there are some common features and then there are features very specific to pancreatic cancer, for example. And the machine learning algorithm digests all of that information to be able to uh, make a cancer determination. And then it looks for different signatures and different features that are associated with what, you know, being, being pancreatic origin or being liver origin or being head and neck origin or, you know, human papillomavirus related cancers have a very specific signature. So it's combining all that information and looking for those two very specific signatures. And some features are shared across cancers and other features are more cancer specific. Yeah. I mean, the big picture here is when you find cancer in its late stage, okay, most people don't survive five years, right? And so when you find cancer in its early stage, um, 90% of people, you know, are alive after five years. So if we can look in the blood in, in individuals that are at elevated risk for cancer, but don't, you know, don't have cancer and find these signatures and then tell the doctors where to go look for the diagnosis, we can make a dramatic impact on the public health. So we've done some modeling that shows that, you know, if, if we could do that, if we introduce the gallery test into the population, we could dramatically increase the cancer d- detection rate in the population. So let me give you an example. Today with the five screening tests, we're only detecting, given their performance and the compliance, we're only detecting about 16% of all the cancers that exist in adults over the age of 50, okay, every year. So that's just not enough to make a dent in the cancer mortality rate. Cancer mortality is continuing to escalate. It's about to become the number one killer of men and women worldwide. So these tests, you know, colonoscopy and mammography, they're fantastic and they're saving lives, but they're not detecting enough cancer in the population. So if we added the gallery test and everybody took it to these single cancer screening tests, if we added this multi-cancer screening test, to all of these single cancer tests, um, we could dramatically improve the cancer detection rate from 16% to 50%. And if we looked at only those cancers that are likely to kill people in the next five years, we could increase it to 75%. So that's just a dramatic increase. And that's what it's going to take if we ever hope to bend the mortality curve in cancer. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. I guess your assay is what about fifty different cancers? Like, what are some of the top ones that you can look for signals in that don't exist currently in the market? So all of so forty. So we've we've detected thus far um, fifty different cancer types, and if you look at subtypes of cancer, you know it's well over a hundred. So fifty different cancer types. You know we're finding pancreas and liver and kidney and um, ovarian and head and neck and stomach and small intestine, um, urethral cancers, um, bladder cancers. We're finding all kinds of cancers. Um, We're finding lymphomas and leukemias and myeloid malignancies. So we find a lot of hematologic cancers because obviously they're already shedding DNA into the blood. 
right? Because, you know, these hematologic cells are already in the blood compartments. So it's very easy to find these signals. But then in the solid cancers, we're also finding um, all these cancers that currently don't have screening tests. So it's just a dramatic uh, change. And the big paradigm shift here is moving away from this single cancer screening mindset where we look for one cancer at a time to this idea, which is a very big idea of multi-cancer detection tests. Remember, we use imaging and we look at tissue you know, to find these single cancers. We might look at proteins, we might look at images, and they're very sensitive. In other words, they, they don't miss very much, but they create a lot of false positives. So mammograms, for example, um, the false positive rate is about 10 or 11%, which means that because the incidence of breast cancer is low, for every positive mammogram, only 5% of cases will actually have breast cancer. So a lot of money is being spent and workups are being spent and anxiety is being produced on these false positive results. The way GRAIL developed its test was that we had a false positive rate less than 1% across all these 50 cancers, because we knew that if you're looking for 50 cancers with a single blood test, you can't afford to have all those false positives, right? So we, we tuned the test very specifically to have a very low false positive rate. And so, you know, when you have a positive gallery test, um, you know, you have a one in two chance that you have cancer you know, right now. It's not, it's not one of those, you know, 23andMe tests where it's going to tell you, you may have a risk of developing cancer one day. It's that you very likely have cancer now. And here's where you go look for it. Is this test going to be administered, I guess, with, uh, you know, if I go to my doctor or like, is it yeah, going to be so part this of is, yearly screening? Like, how do you think it's going to come out in the clinic? Well, you know, it's a great question. So Richard, most people, most adults, about 70% of Americans you know, do have a doctor visit and get their blood drawn once a year. You know, whether it's your annual health check or you're going for an existing screening test, it's a, we're, we're envisioning this as being not replacing any of the single cancer screening tests, but adding to it. And it's just a single simple blood test. So you just draw two tubes of blood in a normal blood draw and you ship it off to the Grail lab and we process the sample and we get you the result back in seven to 10 days. And we think that should be done annually right now based on everything we know about the progression of cancer and how fast cancers grow, we think doing it once a year right now is, is the wisest way to do it. We may learn later that we can do it less than that, or we may learn that we need to do it more frequently in some people. But for, for people over the age of 50, for example, who have a 13 times higher incidence of cancer, they're at quite an elevated risk. And we think doing this test once a year could be the way to go. So the doctor would order it. And you'd get your blood drawn either when you come in to see the doctor, when you come in for one of your screening tests, or you can go to the community. You can go to the Quest Labs in your neighborhood or go to Rite Aid and get your blood drawn. Or people can come to your house and draw your blood. It's very easy. And so during this time of COVID, for example, where people have just stopped getting their cancer screening tests because they don't want to go to the doctor or they don't want to go to the hospital, having a blood test like this could be very, could be very helpful. Um, and we're envisioning we're envisioning that it would be commercially available probably somewhere you know sometime in the middle of 2021 we hope you know cancer is usually expressed in stages um, so out of the 50 um, how many are not tested for at all and with your test what stage might you be able to uh, to know that you have these particular cancers like 
I know that again, there's 50 different kinds. They're all different numbers, but yeah, is there an average right. or is there certain ones that are better than others? Yeah, there is. It's a great question. You know, the way I think about it is, you know, right now, and we'll, and we'll develop, we'll learn that we're, we find many more cancers than just 50. But right now we know that we can find 50 cancers. 45 of them have no available screening today. And we find them across all different stages. So we find, you know, stage one, stage two. So of the deadly 12 cancers, for example, of the 12 deadliest cancer types that account for about 60 uh, or more percent of cancer deaths in this country, um, stage two cancers, which are very localized and often curable, we find stage two cancer almost 70% of the time. Okay. So sensitivity is 70% for stage two cancers. For stage one cancers, it drops because stage one cancers are very early and not all of them shed a lot of DNA into the blood. Um, some cancers, we have very good stage one detection, over 50%. Some, we have less effective stage one detection, like these slow-growing prostate cancers or slow-growing breast cancers that you know people are debating whether or not they're the cancers that are going to kill you anyways. Um, we, we have you know kind of less than 30% uh, sensitivity in stage one. But as, as the stages increase, stage two, which is still localized and, and highly treatable and curable, we have pretty good detection. And for the deadliest cancers, we have very good detection in stage two, about 70% sensitive. And the interesting thing, Richard, about, about the way that we're detecting cancer by looking at DNA in the blood is that it appears that the cancers that are the most invasive and the most lethal that we are detecting very well. And the cancers that are really slow growing and not likely to kill people, we have trouble detecting. And that is kind of a good thing because some of the, some, what people are worried about in cancer screening is that we're over-diagnosing indolent cancers or cancers that really aren't going to kill people anyways. And it turns out that just because of the way we're looking for cancer by looking at DNA in the blood, those cancers are not shedding a lot of DNA into the blood. What about if I have one of these particular types of cancer? Should I use your test as an ongoing diagnostic of its progression rate? It's a great question. We are actually studying our tests now to see how we do believe it will be an effective way at looking at tumor recurrence. So we could monitor people for recurrence after treatment, and we may be able to monitor uh, whether there's any remaining cancer after treatment. So minimal residual disease or what they call MRD, and then, you know, recurrence monitoring uh, is, is adept. those are potential applications for our technology. And we're actually studying those right now. But the initial application commercially will be in the screening setting and people who don't have cancer, they don't know they have cancer, but they may be at elevated risk of having cancer. If you catch some of these cancers early, I mean, you know, I, I feel like this a lot of the time that I don't want to know because I worry also the standard of care, surgery, radiation, chemo. I mean, no one wants that. Um, if cancers are caught early, I know it depends on the cancer, but are there other treatments that can help at an earlier stage or are you still stuck with the main three? Well, it's, you're absolutely right. I think, I think there is a misperception um, that's very frequent in the population, which is that you know, can't, most cancers don't have effective treatment, so why bother looking, right? And we hear that a lot. But in fact, if you look carefully at the literature and at the guidelines, most early cancers, solid cancers, let's just focus on those for a minute, most solid tumors in their early localized stage are imminently treatable and often curable with surgery and radiation. 
We just don't hear a lot about that because there aren't that many early cancers that we detect, right? So there's a lot of cured breast cancer now because we're curing breast, we're finding breast cancer early. There's a lot of cured colon cancer because we're able to find colon cancer early, cervical cancer as well. So um, even prostate and lung. The issue is we don't find very many early cancers. So people aren't hearing a lot about how effective early surgical and radiation treatment is for early stage localized cancer. But we estimate that if we can dramatically, if we introduce the gallery test into the population, we could intercept cancers at a much earlier stage, about 70% of them, and then that could have a dramatic impact on the cancer death rate. And our models using epidemiology data from the US suggest that we could have, in those people who are likely to die of cancer in the next five years, we could avert about 39% of those deaths if we just used the gallery test to detect their cancers at an earlier stage. And just to put that number in context, that's about 100,000 deaths averted every year. That's about the same number of deaths as we're averting due to everything we're throwing at cancer today. All of our treatments, all of our diagnostics, all of our post-treatment care, everything, all of our prevention, screening, treatment, all of it is averting about 100,000 deaths a year. So this new multi-cancer early detection technology could just, you know, make a dramatic impact in public health. Yeah, no, that's excellent. So what's some of the first things to do? Get it into clinics, get it used, and then is it to up the specificity or sensitivity or is it to add more cancers on? Like what's, what's your end goal maybe yeah. in the next couple of years? What do you envision this product, you know, full-blown? What does it look like? Great question, Richard. So we've done, you know, what's probably one of the largest clinical genomics program to date. We've enrolled, you know, over 140,000 individuals in clinical studies to validate the test, to develop the test, revalidate the test. Now we're studying it in the real world. We're actually implementing the test in clinical practice under, under protocol, studying it to make sure that, you know, we know how to implement it. We know what advice to give to the clinicians. We know how to work up these cancer signals and, and that we can replicate our findings in the real world. And then as we introduce it, what we think a couple of things are going to happen. We're going to collect data at scale. We just announced a large partnership with the, uh, the UK's national health system, uh, NHS, to do a study in about 140,000 individuals in, under real world conditions. And we're going to learn between that and our launch in the US, we're going to collect enough data to continue to learn about more and more cancers, teach the machine learning algorithm, and develop the next generation of this test that we hope will even be more sensitive, more specific, and detect even more cancer types. Because even today, our machine learning algorithm is developed, is able to detect cancers it's never been trained on. So it's going to get smarter. That's one thing we're going to do. The other thing is we're looking at different analytes to see if we if we looked in the urine or if we looked at RNA, could those also add uh, to the sensitivity to be able to detect even more cancer and detect it earlier uh, to the blood test that we already have. So we're continuing to explore. We're look, We're always going to be open. We're going to look at proteins. We're going to look at RNA. We're going to look at urine. We're looking at all kinds of things to see is there any value. We've already studied mutations and chromosome changes, and we know that they don't add to our to our ability to detect cancer. So we need to keep looking at these other these other analytes to see if they can be additive. So as we version the test, we hope to get more sensitive. We hope to find more cancers. Obviously, we'll reduce the cost. We'll keep getting more and more efficient 
to get the cost of the test down over time. And so that's really where we're looking for the future. And then because we've already solved the biggest technical challenge, which is how do you find cancer early, going into these other areas, like in the post-cancer, you know, in, in existing cancer patients, what's the best way to use the test? What about people who have symptoms that, are, that, that make their doctors concerned about cancer? How do we use the test there? Those are also applications that we're studying. Very interesting. Is this essentially like a, a liquid biopsy or is this kind of a different type of thing versus, I know that some companies are working on what they call liquid biopsies, I guess, specifically of tumors, but uh, this seems to be yeah. earlier and this seems to be more, uh, more holistic, I guess. You're, you're exactly right. So the term liquid biopsy was coined to reflect how do I study someone's cancer by looking in the blood instead of looking in the tissue. That was really the, the way the term liquid biopsy got termed but, or coined. But now that term liquid biopsy is really being applied broadly to just looking in the blood for anything related to cancer, whether you have cancer or not. So I, you know, I, I would prefer that the term liquid biopsy be reserved for people who have known cancer, but people are using that term very broadly. So yes, we are, we are in some sense a liquid biopsy because we're looking in the blood at the DNA circulating in the blood and looking for signals of cancer. But that's a much different technical challenge from a signal to noise ratio. It's really trying to find a needle in the haystack in people who don't have cancer because there's a lot of biological noise that you need to control for. Whereas in a patient who already has cancer, the signal is incredibly strong and there's not nearly as much noise you have to contend with. So it's a much different technical challenge. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about Grail and to keep tabs and to find out, you know, when the first tests will be available in clinic? Yeah. So I think right now, you know, grail.com is our website and there's some good educational material. There's some descriptive material. Um, we're going to be, you know, bringing Gallery, which is the, the brand name of the, of the first application test into the market at some point in 2021. And there will be a, a gallery.com website at some point uh, in the future. But right now, the best way is to go to grail.com and, um, and explore that website because there's a lot of good material on there. And, um, you know, we really look forward to, to bringing this product uh, to patients because, you know, again, I, I, I feel a great deal of urgency around it. You know, we're, we're losing the war on cancer and uh, we're losing about 1,700 loved ones a day in this country to cancer. And uh, it's about to become the number one killer of men and women worldwide. And with COVID, uh, I have even more urgency because we've learned from the National Cancer Institute that um, somewhere between 50 and 80% of the cancer screenings are no longer being done, even for the five cancers we know how to look for. And so they're predicting a higher mortality rate from cancer in the next 10 years as a result of that. So we have a lot of work to do, but bringing accessible, simple tests like this uh, to patients and their primary care providers could make a huge difference. And uh, we're very excited about that. Well, very good, Josh. This is super important stuff, like you said. And as I was speaking to uh, your assistant earlier, um, cancer affects everybody. I've had it. I've had thyroid cancer and family yeah. members have had it. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's just everywhere. And I guess the stats are that, what, 50% of men and 33% of women are going to have it in their lifetime at some point, which is insane. So, yeah, it's a big deal. It is. And all of us, you know, most of us have been touched by cancer you know, I personally have been touched by a scare of cancer, uh, a, a cancer that was found early and cured, 
and also a cancer that was found too late and resulted in an early death. And so I think for those of us who've been touched by it, we know that it's the one disease that keeps people up at night. And if we can provide some tools for people to take control of their healthcare and want to you know, do everything they can to find cancer early, that that's going to be the best way to change the mortality trajectory of cancer and, and give people more control. So, you know, so they're not kept up at night like that. Well, very good, Josh. Thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.